You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Today, we are going to get some great insight from the guy who heads up the team that has won the most accurate economic forecasting. And I think we could all use that. Wouldn't you love to get an idea of what's coming in 2023 and 2024 in the housing market and in the overall economy? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Doug Duncan is a senior vice president and chief economist at Fannie Mae, where he's responsible for forecasts on the economy, housing, and mortgage markets. Under his leadership, Fannie Mae's economic and strategic research group earned the 2022 Lawrence R. Klein Award for Blue Chip Forecast Accuracy, recognizing their industry-leading work for over four years. And then back in 2015 and 2016, Duncan and his team won the most accurate GDP and Treasury note yield forecasts. Doug is one of Bloomberg and Business Week's 50 Most Powerful People in Real Estate and Inman News' 100 Most Influential People in Real Estate. And he's here with us on The Real Wealth Show. Doug Duncan, welcome back to The Real Wealth Show. It's really great to see you again. Thanks for the invite. It's, uh, it's always great to be with you. It's been a little while. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. And the timing couldn't be better. Uh, so many people have been predicting that mortgage rates would come down uh, when inflation would come down. And we haven't really seen it, at least not this month. So what in the world is going on? Yeah, we we haven't really been in that camp. Our view uh, is conditioned on two or three things. One is we took the Fed at their word when they said uh, it really doesn't matter how fast we raise rates. It does matter how far we raise them, but it also matters how long we keep it there. And so our view has been for quite some time that the Fed, once they reached the the level they wanted to get to, would stay there for a while. And so our forecast reflects that. The second thing is uh, people have looked at the fact that uh, spreads between treasury rates and mortgage rates had gotten very wide, and they still are very wide. Uh, And they were uh, projecting that those spreads would come back in and mortgage rates would fall as a result. Our view on that is that, uh, and has been, that we don't know exactly why they are wide, as wide as they are, But without knowing that, we couldn't be certain that they would come back in. There's several reasons that uh, they might be as wide as they are. For example, uh, if the risks of a recession were greater, then there would be some risk related to delinquency potentially if there was job loss. So they might be bidding in a risk premium related to that. The Federal Reserve is allowing their balance sheet to run off, the, the mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet to run off, and someone has to replace them. Whoever replaces them may require more yield. Uh, there may be uh, some uh, expectation that, that, all, that uh, foreign investors may also lose some appetite based on either the debt ceiling debate or some of the geopolitical risks. So we've kind of been of the view, we didn't really see rates coming back down very quickly um, and probably not for the rest of this year and perhaps even partway through next year. So to kind of summarize the yield, if the the 10-year treasury is at, let's say, 4%, then typically the mortgage rate would be like 5.7 to 6%. 
Would that be historic? Somewhere in that ballpark, uh, 150 to 175 basis points higher. Um, and of course, the market has been trying to understand where the Fed is going to go. And the, the Fed is also subject to all of the issuance of treasuries that the Treasury Department has to make to fund our deficits, which are very large at the moment. So there's upward pressure on rates from those prospectuses, perspectives, uh, and also um, that uh, growth has actually been stronger than we had anticipated through the first part of this year, uh, which can also put some upward pressure on rates. Yeah. <laughs> did anyone anticipate that? I mean, who knows if you know if anybody did, but the economy appears to be stronger than many, many people expected with, with the Fed raising rates so drastically, so quickly. Uh, one would think that the economy would slow down. And what we're seeing is a, still a lot of job openings and not as many jobless claims as one would expect. I hear some people saying, oh, well, that's because the jobs data isn't real, <laughs> okay, or is manipulated. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't believe that. I, I don't think our statistical, federal statistical agencies are, are subject to either political pressure or some sort of uh, other outside pressure. I think they're doing the best job they can in measuring the economy, so I'm, I'm not in that camp. We certainly are in the camp that expected a slower growth uh, today than what we're seeing. In fact, our thought was we might have a mild recession beginning in the third quarter. It doesn't look like that at the present time. To your point, employment, the employment sector is still pretty strong. Um, and uh, retail sales came in very strong. Uh, and there's actually a huge boost from the investment requirements of the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the um, Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act, all of those have actually stimulated a pretty significant amount of investment, which is carrying things forward from a growth perspective. Uh, in addition uh, to the, the uh, whatever remaining savings households have to support uh, their, uh, their spending. We do think that while those the estimates of the excess savings, excess, when people use the word excess, what they mean is leftover savings from all the stimulus income transfers. Um, you have to decide what you think a normal savings rate is. So if you pick eight percent, you'll say, well, they got they're out of excess savings. If you pick three percent, you might say, well, they have another quarter to go before they run out of that. The way we look at it is we're not sure what a normal savings rate is. So we look at, are people starting to use credit, which would mean to us that they have exhausted savings. And you are starting to see a rise in some uh, parts of credit card delinquencies. You're seeing more rollover balances. Uh, you're seeing more use of debit cards relative to credit, which suggests some conservatism. So we do think that the consumer is likely to slow uh, in the near term. And that's behind our view that we still at some point will have a mild uh, recession, but mild because of housing. And I know we're going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's do it then. Uh, when do you see this mild recession hitting and why did you mention housing in that? 
Well, we, we uh, now think that it's likely to start in the first quarter. I will say our, the odds of that we would really put at about 50-50. And you've seen a lot of people because of the strength of GDP when finally reported for the second quarter was stronger than, than most everyone had anticipated. The thought is that will carry forward for a while. The why we say mild or choose the word mild, um, and we define that as saying that the rate of unemployment or the, the, the slowdown in economic activity will be about a half of one percentage point. So it's not very much from a historical perspective in, in terms of a downturn. And the unemployment rate would rise to something short of 5%. So those are pretty mild by uh, historical downturn uh, perspectives. But housing is the reason, in our view, that either um, it's a mild recession or a soft landing, meaning that we don't get that downturn in growth and or a significant run-up in unemployment. Why is that the case? Well, you have a lot of people that have locked in very low interest rates, 25 to 3.5%, which actually gives them additional cash free up, freed up to support the consumption side. So one of the reasons that consumption has been stronger than anticipated was the fact that they went from a 5% mortgage to a 2.5% mortgage, and that freed up a bunch of more cash for them to spend uh, and support the economy from that perspective. In addition, uh, the, even though the number of existing home sales is down significantly, in fact, we're back to almost 2009 levels, the, the uh, demographic demand is still strong among those households who are salaried households, which is typically, typically where home purchasers are. The service sector, the hourly wage workers only have about a 40% home ownership rate. But when people graduate from that sector into the, the salaried sector, then they become potential homeowners. We're still not at the peak of the, the demographic demand of the millennials. They're still two or three years off from that. And they are, in general, in the salaried uh, category. So there's been strength there, along with the trans income transfers that they received in the stimulus, for them to be... Um, active on the demand side. And since people are not offering existing homes for sale, that's given impetus to the builders. So the construction side of things, is, which is a big contributor to economic growth, has been doing quite well uh, after about a quarter of a downturn uh, in, in the latter half of last year. Which so housing is part of the story. And which I'm explains sorry. why Warren Buffett just uh, made a big investment in, what was it, D.R. Horton, Lennar, and NVR uh, with $800 million in investment, with $700 million of that apparently going to D.R. Horton, which typically builds more starter homes and affordable homes. That's really been the issue, right, with inventory is that over the past decade, builders have had a hard time building affordable housing, so they build the higher end. I mean, would you agree with that? And do you think that uh, that home builders will, will be able to provide the supply that's needed? I, I do agree with that. And a, a little bit of it is if you think about, if you've ever walked into a builder's sales office, which I know now most of them are, are perhaps vis, uh, virtual, but if you actually walked into a builder's sales office, 
what they're offering is choices among different finishes, among different levels of completion, among different sizes and shapes of, of structures, uh, a series of options. But an entry-level buyer is typically looking for maybe three bedrooms, uh, two and a half baths, a, a one or two car garage, and not much more than that. Maybe a roof. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just give me a roof. roof. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> um, uh, but pretty basic uh, because that's the affordability point for them. So that was a cultural shift for builders to make a move to the entry-level buyer. Typically, their, their purchaser has been someone that was that bought an existing home, put some sweat equity into it, took the, the equity appreciation, including that sweat equity, and turned that into a down payment for a move up to a new home. But this, this environment with the very low level of existing homes available, both because of that lock-in effect and because the boomers are saying what they were always going to do, which is age in place, that sort of shifted the, the uh, impetus to the, to the builders. And builders have more flexibility in their loan product as well. I, I just closed on a brand new duplex through our Real Wealth Network, uh, and we got a four and three quarter interest rate on an investment property because the builder was able to pay points and get that that rate down. Um, are you seeing that as a solution for a lot of these builders as well? Uh, in the, in the past, what you often saw was as a way to uh, induce the purchaser by giving them more value, builders would say, we'll give you granite countertops or we'll give you a finished basement or other attributes, which in some way changed the house. If they have the financial wherewithal to do it on the, the credit side, they don't have to change the structure of the property and, and, sort of their core market position uh, in in order to induce the buyer. So, yes, you, you saw almost immediately when the Fed tightened to the point that mortgage rates went past 7%, you saw almost immediately the emergence of two one-buy downs. The profit margins for builders have been very good, so they have the wherewithal to offer some of that uh, margin back to consumers so instead of doing it on the structure, they were doing it in the financing side of things. Um, part of the reason they had to do that was when mortgage rates hit 7%, there weren't any buyers in the mortgage-backed securities market that were willing to take a security backed by 7% mortgages because their view was as soon as the Fed eased monetary policy, rates would come down and those loans would refinance and go away. So that was another reason incentive for the builders to to give the the buy downs on rates uh, to encourage borrowers. Yeah. So <clears throat> existing home sellers, keep that in mind. That's what mm -hmm. people don't want to pay seven percent. If you can pay some points, get that rate down, that'll make a big difference. Okay. That's right. So you won in 2022, the Lawrence R. Klein Award, which is presented to someone or a team for accuracy in forecasting, which has obviously been really hard to do these past few years. So what is it about your forecasting that has worked and had you win this award? Well, it was a, it was a real honor and I'm, I'm glad you said it was a team award. It was definitely a team effort uh, uh, by our forecast team. 
Um, as do others, we use models, uh, econometric models, <clears throat> but in this, this award is a four-year look back on your forecast. So it's not just one forecast period, but it's actually a sustained quality in forecasting. And uh, the thing that I was proud of the team for was this included the pandemic, the forecast during that time period. So one of the things that that we did, and we do on, in other areas like housing, is pay attention to things that are not captured in models, particularly behavioral kinds of things. So when the pandemic hit, none of the models worked because there was no data on which a model could uh, form some projections because the event had never happened before, at least in modern, uh, modern uh, economic times. And so we said, well, then how do we gather information that will help us make good judgment calls and adjust the model based on judgment? And so our immediate observation was this was a health issue. Uh, and so the first thing that was going to be important is how do people react to this? Because the way people react to this is going to impact how they interact with businesses and the interactions of people and businesses are going to invoke action by governments uh, in response to what, what is seen. And so we started calling, uh, talking to different uh, business groups, uh, talk, and we, we do survey a thousand households a month. So we use our survey technology to ask people, what are you thinking? They can answer those surveys from home. They don't have to go out anywhere uh, to do that. So it's safe to reply to a survey. So we, we, we started a process of gathering information on behaviors that we thought could be used to adjust the, the models that we run judgmentally, uh, given that there wasn't a history of data for the model to learn from. Got it. Well, it's been, it's impressive. It's worked. That's, that's been not easy to do. Um, so with that knowledge and that process, what's your outlook for housing in, in 2024 and beyond? Again, we know that there's this huge demand, like you said, these millennials forming households, getting married, having babies, huge chunk of them, a bubble of them at that first time home buying age. But that will pass eventually, right? And then there's a smaller generation behind them. So what do you see next year and beyond for housing? Um, yeah, there's two, two or three things to think about there. One is, while it won't happen next year, if you're doing long-range planning, you have to think about immigration because the birth rate, the domestic birth rate in the United States is not replacement. So the, the replacement birth rate is 2.1 live births per birthing age uh, woman. Our current birth rate is about 1.8. It actually fell below that in the pandemic, but I think it's come back uh, to, to roughly that. That suggests that we're going to have to import people uh, if we're going to maintain a sort of a stable growth path. And it's important for a variety of reasons, but housing certainly is one of the areas that, that will that will be impacted. But the second is um, the, the rise in house prices uh, surprised people in that it didn't come back when mortgage rates came up, which is a result of a couple of things we've been talking about. One is 
the lack of existing home supply on the market, which we don't see changing anytime soon, um, and this demographic bulge that you were talking about, and the rise in interest rates, which while 7% sounds really bad compared to 3%, if you look at the long-term average all the way back to, say, World War II, mortgage, 30 or fixed-rate mortgages averaged around 6%. So from the long-term perspective, if income growth it reaches long-term averages, which is somewhere north of around 3% annually, then that 6% mortgage made sense. Uh, so there is, there's a bit of a business model adjustment that has to take place and also a framework of thinking that has to take place to, for households to adjust to the fact that it won't be surprising if uh, we see mortgage rates around 6% for a while. Uh, it, it, I said three things, so that was two. One of the other things that needs to be thought about is what's the long-term potential growth rate of the United States? As it's stronger, you would expect a little higher interest rates to reflect that growth, as it's not as strong, somewhat lower. So cyclically, you might expect with a growth rate expectation as issued by uh, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which is where the official government estimate of that comes from, of about one and three quarters percent. From my perspective, in a normal business cycle, that might mean a mortgage rate of uh, four and a half to six percent over the cycle um, and adjust that according to whether you think growth will be stronger or less strong. One other thing I would add is we're not done yet with all the effects of the pandemic. And so uh, economists aren't necessarily good at snappy uh, phrases for things. So I told my staff I was going to abuse them by talking about the geospatial redistribution of real estate values in their <laughs> eyes all the <laughs> over. <laughs> the... the um, point that's trying to be made there is that the pandemic caused people to relocate and businesses to relocate and all of the adjustments of values in real estate are not done based on understanding how those uh, changes took place. So one way to think about that is if you had an apartment building in the center city that was populated by workers who were working in offices in proximity to that, and now those offices are only filled half the time they were previously, it's going to support less other small businesses that used to cater to those residents like restaurants and dry cleaners and things like that. Demand for their services will fall in that neighborhood, is it reasonable to think that the valuation of that apartment building might also change based on that re that reduction of uh, amenities in the neighborhood uh, because of the shift of the job location? That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is that if your job clearly can be done remotely with no loss of productivity, you can live almost anywhere. And there's a lot of differences regionally in prices. And you, we have seen already some movement in that space. I don't think we're done seeing all the movement uh, uh, in that space yet. 
So I imagine you do look at these demographics and for a long time, we were seeing people moving from high priced markets to more affordable markets for that very reason. If you've got a a tech job in San Francisco and suddenly you can live anywhere, everything is cheaper. And many people were moving east and whether that be Arizona, Nevada, or all the way to Texas and then Florida, are we still seeing that migration uh, from the high priced areas to lower priced or is is this kind of demand for housing everywhere still? Yeah, we are seeing that. Uh, we have a, a map of the United States that's kind of a heat map, and green makes, means housing activity is picking up, and red means it's uh, falling back. And you can see the the red starting in the west, the red turns toward green the further east and southeast that you move. So part of that is uh, is the impetus of moving to lower-cost areas with a job that can be done remotely. But part of it is also businesses moving for tax reasons or productivity reasons as well. And, of course, uh, people will follow jobs. Uh, and if jobs are moving, then uh, you, you will see some movement along with that. Maybe not as much as we did in the past because some of those jobs will now be remote. And so the the employer may move, but the job might stay with you wherever you are. That's one possibility. Very good. Okay. Well, is there any closing statement you want to say to our audience who's pr- probably pretty heavily invested in real estate? They they can they can take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I people will ask me from time to time, why did you stay in real estate? I left the Mortgage Bankers Association, went to Fannie Mae. It's a pretty simple reason. It's because. Every night, every human everywhere on the planet puts their head down on a piece of real estate, and that will always be true. Mm -hmm. So it's the human story. It ebbs and flows, but there is that one basic thing that will always be true about people in real estate is you have to have a place to put your head. So um, it it will always be something that's important, uh, no matter whether you're currently ebbing or flowing, it will always be important. Very good point. So that just brings me to one last question in that this time around, this is not 2008, where most people were on adjustable rate mortgages and couldn't handle the the change in payment. Most people today are on fixed rates, at least in Mm -hmm. residential, but that's not the case in commercial. Uh, so that gives me a lot of, um, comfort knowing that the, the, you know, residential housing is really on solid ground because people's payments aren't changing, but that's not true for commercial. So where do you see that specifically in multifamily? Because I, I would say a lot of our listeners would be invested in multifamily as well, and they're seeing their payments change. Yeah, uh, so there's uh, two or three things there. One is the rise in rates, uh, which has been dramatic and sudden has dramatically cut the number of starts in multifamily. So uh, a couple of years from now, you may find that there's a lack of inventory and rents might have pressure on them. Today, that's not the case because there's something like a million units in train that will come online in the next year or two. And so we do see some slowing in rent appreciation, maybe one and a half percent nationally or something like that this year and some upturn in vacancy, particularly if this mild recession were to occur, but maybe even if it's only just slow growth. 
So the next couple of years, you'll see, and obviously it varies market by market, but there will be some uh, pressure on rents uh, and uh, vacancies are likely to rise a bit. But like I say, with that rapid rise in rates, the cutback in starts, if that stays for a little while, which is likely to be the case, starting out there maybe in 2025 or, or 2026, you might see some rent appreciation picking up again. Okay. Oh, that's a great answer. All right. Well, Doug Duncan, thank you again for joining me here on The Real Well Show. I look forward to seeing you, I think, in October or November at Bruce Norris's I Survived event. Fancy black tie event. It's going to be great. Great. Uh, good to be with you again. Looking forward. I'll uh, look forward to saying hi when we uh, when we gather. And don't forget your cowboy boots with that with that. Tux. I will not. Okay. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you would like more insights on the real estate market and where to invest, which markets are growing rapidly but still have affordable pricing and cash flow, but a lot of growth in the future, just go to realwealthshow.com. Under the Invest tab, you'll see a drop down of the different markets. You'll get lots of free market data and referrals to teams in those markets who specialize in helping investors acquire real estate, and they offer property management to make it a turnkey investment. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Also, we have our 20-year anniversary live event coming up October 7th at a hotel near the LAX airport. We're going to be flying out those teams from across the country to meet you so that you can find out more about their markets, more about their property management, and what kind of deals they can find you. As an example, Rich and I just bought a brand new duplex just outside of Jacksonville, one of the fastest growing markets in the U.S. We got the property for about thirty dollars or $40,000 under market, again, brand new, and we were able to negotiate a four and three quarter percent interest rate for 10 years, fixed for 10 years. These are the kind of deals that you can get through these insiders in our network at Real Wealth. So again, you can go to realwealthshow.com to get a list of those resources and talk with one of our investment counselors. I'm Kathy Fecky. Thanks for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.